1: Do not ask Ukraine when the war will end.
0: Ask yourself, why is Putin still able to continue it? Two years ago, Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And after a series of major battlefield successes for Kyiv in 2022, 2023 saw the war enter a phase of dynamic stalemate. With the recent loss of Avdivka, Ukraine has started 2024 in a defensive posture, as ammunition shortages start to have consequences for Ukraine's war effort. So at this critical juncture, as Ukraine still waits for adequate Western funding to hold off Putin's army and Russian forces commit yet more bodies into a bloody and incremental quest for land in the east of Ukraine, we ask what next, both in Ukraine and an increasingly rogue Russian state? I'm Oz Katterjee, and this is Not A Drill. Welcome to the first of a two part special, as we reach the second anniversary of Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine, a brutal conflict, which has cost the lives of countless 1000s of Ukrainians, and left much of the country in ruin. In the next episode, which subscribers to this podcast will be able to access early right after listening to this show. We will speak to Ukrainian writer and Academy Fellow at Chatham House's Ukraine Forum, Olher Tokariuk, about how Ukrainian society and its political and military apparatus continue to hold firm despite two years of attacks on the Russian war machine. But first, it's important we understand just how this brutality came about. We need to assess Putin's Russia two years into the war having just murdered the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny in prison, and with advances on the battlefield in eastern Ukraine, thanks to pro-Russian congressional Republicans successfully continuing to block US military aid to Ukraine, Putin likely feels like the war is finally trending in his favour. To discuss all of this and more, I spoke to the historian and host of the In Moscow's Shadows podcast, Mark Gagliotti. Hello, Mark, and welcome to the podcast. We will, of course, focus on Russia's war in Ukraine shortly. But unfortunately, I have to start by asking you about the news which has dominated recent headlines, the murder of prominent opposition leader Alexei Navalny in a Russian prison. What has been your reaction to and analysis of that news? I mean, obviously, it's, it's horrific and tragic.
1: And for what it's worth, I think this represents the the continued degeneration, frankly, of Putin's regime, not into something like Stalinism, but really into its banana republic phase, that it's essentially a self-interested kleptocracy, basically just simply trying to preserve its own security and capacity to steal. And in that respect, look, Navalny is gone, we don't yet know what kind of short term impact that will have on Russian politics. But what we can say is that it absolutely demonstrates the the fears and paranoias of the regime. They appreciate the degree to which there is a growing restive mood within the population, that for all kinds of different reasons, whether it's fear of being mobilized for the war, whether it's because of the increasing hardships of ordinary day to day life, that people are unhappy. And the great terror of the Kremlin is someone, some new Navalny, can come along and unite this coalition of the fed up. They tried to short circuit this process by killing Navalny. But the point is, if protests arise, new leaders will emerge from
0: within them. Do you think Putin feels particularly emboldened right now to do something this audacious
1: To be honest, I'm not entirely convinced that this was something that was specifically decided at the time because timing wise, this isn't good for Putin. This happens just at the time when the large aid package is being debated in Washington and just a month before presidential elections. Clearly, the political technologists in the Kremlin, they wanted a a boring, bland election. They didn't want to run the risk of protest. So I I think this is not something that was actually decided there and then. It was instead slow motion murder, taking someone whose system was already damaged by the nerve agent, the Novichok attack he'd been through before, and then putting him in an incredibly harsh environment. It could have happened last month. It could happen next year. Who knows? So I think that's the way it worked. Will Putin be emboldened? I don't think this specifically will, will really change his calculus. I think he's already dug in. In a way, you know, he he can't go back, he can only go forward. And in that respect, it's more the, the dynamics of the battlefield that will determine what happens rather than domestic politics.
0: Ukrainian forces have now withdrawn from Avdivka in the east of Ukraine. Uh, rumors are that Russia expended up to 16,000 casualties trying to take that city. With an eye looking forward to the election, do you think this was a huge push by uh, Russia so that Putin had some sort of victory to take to the electorate? And uh, are those losses impacting um, opinion in Russia in any way yet?
1: it's clear that in terms of the losses the the state is putting a lot of effort into trying to damp down any knowledge let alone response to that and i think frankly it's it's something that is going to be a slow burn issue through the course of this year because if you look at it look the the investment of human life into taking advikovka is totally out of proportion with any strategic value yes putin I'm sure, appreciates having some kind of a victory. And you can see it being splashed all across the Russian media at the moment. But at the same time, the irony is he clearly does not want this election to be a plebiscite about the war. If anything, he's actually been very cautious about distancing himself from any talk directly of military action. There's a lot of talk about a a wider civilizational struggle with the West, but not the nitty gritty of the war, because he precisely knows that actually it scares people. I mean, it's clear that look, you know, it's although it's very hard to actually be sure of, of anything like the figures, but broadly speaking, about a quarter of Russians are genuinely supportive of the war. About a quarter are broadly opposed, that are half you know, just keeping their head down, they don't really want to think about it. Now, one can sort of think of those in, in in different ways, but what it does mean is clearly there is a large portion of Russians who frankly see the war as either an inconvenience or a downright bad thing, and who are suffering all kinds of practical hardships as a result of the war whether it's because of the inflation which is actually eating into people in the country's food budget whether it's because of impact on savings the majority of russians now have no savings um you know all, all of these are practical things and therefore talking a lot about the war does not necessarily win them over this idea that uh Russians should should be mobilized by the sense of being in a sort of a grand civilizational struggle. It's not working. So they're actually clearly trying to play down the war and instead play up the sense of precisely that the, the Putin is the only real candidate who has any note, which is easy when, as you say, you exclude everyone else who might possibly challenge him and you make sure that he's essentially standing against the slate of political pygmies. And... Stressing his kind of managerial role, the goodies that he's going to be providing, the fact that, of course, next year is going to be that much better in classic politician style. So as I say, I mean I think from from that point of view, I don't think Adivka is 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 linked to the political campaign. I think it is actually much more connected to how the Russians see the potential for the military campaign in in 2024. There's no way of getting around it. This year, unfortunately, Moscow has a variety of advantages. It has weathered the the counteroffensive from last year. It has, frankly, more ammunition, more artillery ammunition that it can throw at the Ukrainians, at least for for this year, not least thanks to North Koreans. And there is the hope of further political disarray in the West, affecting aid, as, we, as we're currently seeing in in, in Washington. So th- this is, I, I think, sort of part of Putin's attempt to take advantage of 2024 before a whole variety of changes take place, and also before the Russian economy really starts to squeak under the weight of, of this conflict. There is a sense, and we're even seeing it cautiously being expressed by russian sources that they're aware that actually 2025 is going to be rather different by that point you know the ammunition uh, sort of balance will, will have been to a degree redressed the ukrainians may well have had a chance to properly kind of metabolize the equipment and the training that they've been given as well as the experiences of the 1st counteroffensive, and therefore things could get rough so you know i think what they are doing is in very very bloody way trying to make what advantages they can when they can. Because that sense of almost we we push the line as far as we can and then we freeze it. That, I think, is is, is their goal.
0: A lot of people in the West seem to believe that if we stop supporting Ukraine, and it should be pointed out that Ukraine has effectively been cut off from Western aid for about 14 months now or so, so it's been a substantial amount of time, a lot of people in the West have been arguing that Ukraine should sit around the negotiating table with Russia. Two things on that. Number one, if the Ukrainians did that, they would also require the international community to do that. That would be recognizing territory that Russia has won by warfare as being legitimate Russian territory, which would effectively undo everything international law has been geared towards since the end of the Second World War. What I want you to focus on is the idea that a Russian peace deal with Ukraine uh, would be the end of it, and that Putin wouldn't look to invade again and take Kiev again if Ukraine was to sign away all of these territories and recognize them as Russian. So can Putin be trusted if Ukraine was to effectively capitulate to Uh, His current demands?
1: The honest answer is no, of course, Putin can't be trusted. But that in and of itself is not necessarily a reason to, at some point, seek a negotiation. Look, most wars end by negotiation. This war will have to end by negotiation because it is not going to end with a complete victory by either side. We are not going to see Ukrainian tanks rolling into Moscow. And I think it's highly unlikely anymore that we will see Russian tanks rolling into Kyiv even, frankly, were aid to to be curtailed, I'm, I'm, I can't really imagine com- a complete end to aid. The point is, there will have to be some kind of negotiation. Of course, now is not the time. If tomorrow the Ukrainians turn to Russia and say, OK, come on, let's make a deal, I think in those circumstances, Putin would basically regard himself as being on a roll and think, well, why don't we make some other desperate jab to, for example, take a Or, or or otherwise, sort of push forward, and then negotiate from from that advanced position. This is, I think, one of the key weaknesses of this argument that says stop the aid and make negotiations, because precisely that actually would would pitchfork Kiev into negotiations in the weakest possible position. If there are to be negotiations, when there are to be negotiations, and as I said, I don't think it's going to happen now because. Both sides think time is ultimately on their side. But as and when it does happen, the thing about the Western role will not be to yank aid, but quite the opposite. It actually has to be in a position to provide at least as much, if not more, assistance, precisely to ensure that whatever Ukraine emerges. And look, I mean, I I don't think we're in a position where Ukraine is going to concede the current occupied territories. Crimea, I, I will be honest just simply because it matters so much more to Putin, I don't. I honestly don't know what will be the future there. But whatever happens, exactly this Ukraine that emerges must be robust and strong enough that, that Putin cannot think of a round two, or what I suppose technically would be round three, um, of, of of invasion. So it has to be a Ukraine that you know, is, is strong, that actually has its own domestic defense industry built up to the level that it is not so entirely dependent on foreign assistance. But it also needs to have the security guarantees, which frankly, I think, really does have to mean NATO membership. Or at least an analog. Yeah, exactly. You know, so NATO membership by any other name, but you know, the, 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 the equivalent of the Article 5 protection. Because yes, of course, you, know, you can't trust Putin. But on the other hand, what you can do, as with all these deals that get struck with, with often deeply unpleasant regimes, is you have to have the right balance of reasons why he will not want to break it, which includes both deterrence, you'll get chewed up yet again, and this time you may well be also fighting you know, Western forces, but also positive reasons. You know, This way, there probably will have to be some kind of sanctions relief, for example, as and when a deal gets struck. So I think, you know, for all these reasons, you know, we we mustn't assume that you only negotiate with people you trust and like, because actually people you trust and like are often the people you have least reason to negotiate with. But we are nowhere near that point now. And if it is forced through constriction of aid, then essentially we are indeed delivering Ukraine to Putin.
0: So, Tucker Carlson's interview with Putin, I wanted to bring it up with you, uh, because it was quite an event, uh, and particularly the reaction here in Kyiv. Before the interview was released and it was announced, there was this widespread sense of anger and outrage here in Kyiv, um, amongst just general people, you know, the The idea that Carlson was presenting that Putin's uh, perspective hasn't really been listened to, was just seen as absurd and and insulting uh, to many Ukrainians that I spoke to. However, after the interview was published, that moved very quickly from anger and outrage towards ridicule. um, And and they thought that Putin came across as um, ridiculous, to be fair. Do you sense this was an opportunity missed for Putin uh, to be able to speak directly to American conservatives who are successfully uh, holding up aid to Ukraine? And uh, and what do you think sort of motivated uh, his reasoning behind focusing on medieval history rather than the contemporary situation going on now?
1: Yeah, I mean, several points there. I mean, just Briefly, to pick up on the point you made about Tucker Carlson's claims that no one else had wanted Putin's opinion until his, I mean, it's, it's quite striking when even Putin's own press spokesman has to fact check you and Dmitry Peskov saying, no, 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 we, we've had lots of, lots of requests. This is just the first one we, we've accepted. But going on to this business about whether or not it was a missed opportunity, and certainly there is a certain amount of backlash, frankly, even in Russia. People feeling that uh, they, they, their cause, their country did not really come off well. I think on one level, we have to acknowledge that uh, beyond those people who really, really wanted to, or as in my case, really, really had to, would actually sit through the full two hours of this turgid event. So... In part, it's a question of, are there the sort of sound bites and moments that can be harvested for reuse on TV programs and social media and the like? And in this case, there were a few points at which Putin was saying what, from the American conservative's point of view, might be considered the right thing, particularly when he was saying, look, you have a a massive national debt, you have problems on your southern border with migrants, why do you want to be spending all this money on Ukraine in, in in distant Europe so there were a few little sort of victories but on the whole absolutely this was a clearly vastly self-indulgent man just simply expanding at length on what motivates him and the very fact that as you said he started with you know his, his 30 seconds to a minute which becoming 30 minutes of ninth century onwards Russian Ukrainian history as told in half-remembered Soviet history textbooks, what that says is two things. One is that as far as Putin is concerned, this is an issue which is rooted in history. I mean, I think he genuinely believes this. You know, he, he may be a bad historian, but he is a keen one. But secondly, also, this is not a man who steps beyond his own head. This is not a man who thinks really or cares about what the audience really wants. He just wants his own opportunity to put it out there. Tucker Carlson was willing to give it to him, and and therefore he took it. But it says something, I think, now about the degree to which Putin has become disconnected, not just from the outside world, but even from his own
0: country and what matters to his countrymen. So while lots of people do tend to focus on the NATO element, uh, so on, towards the Russian arguments for starting the war, does the history actually explain Putin's thinking much better than Bill Clinton and NATO and uh, enlargement and expansion? The idea that Kiev is a part of, an integral part of what Putin and his ultra-nationalist supporters consider uh, the Russian world, uh, and therefore, if Kiev was to be accepted into the Western orbit within the EU, within NATO, this would be seen as a catastrophe for Russia's standing in its own mind.
1: Yes, I mean, I'd I'd hesitate to say Russia's own mind. I mean, Putin's own mind, certainly. But no, I absolutely agree with you. So much about the, the debates about old NATO expansion and the like, they're not really about practical geopolitical issues. They're actually often really framed by Putin and those people who channel Putin as grievances relating to Russia not being taken seriously, Russia not being given its proper place in the world. I and mean, the interesting thing is that before the invasion, Putin himself wasn't actually talking about NATO expansion into Ukraine as being the key issue. His issue was that there might be Western missiles you know, based there and such like. I think what it is, is this, is look, Putin is very much a kind of a primordial, almost 19th century nationalist. He believes that Russia is a great power, not, not because of its GDP or the respect it has in the world or anything like that, but just because Russia is a great power. And from his point of view, look, what does a great power have? Amongst other things, it has a sphere of influence. And I said a 19th century geopolitician because look, 19th century was, after all, that, you know, that the high point in so many ways of the era of imperialism when the world was divided between countries that got to shape other countries' destinies and those where the only question was, who happens to own you? And from his point of view, Russia is an owner, and Ukraine, the only question is, who owns it? And from his point of view, if Russia doesn't own it, then someone else will. And he sees that exactly as the Americans and the West and so forth. So yes, obviously, it all gets framed in much more practical terms about... Cutting Ukraine off from Russian markets, about the expansion of NATO and so forth. But these are in many ways the, the justifications for what, as I said, I think is a much more emotional, much more primordial sense. Putin comes from that sort of generation of the last real Homo Sovieticus generation who hasn't been able to cope with the idea that Russia is no longer some world bestriding colossus.
0: Uh, this isn't the first time I've heard you use the uh, phrase homo Sovieticus. So I'd like you to expand on that. The second thing I wanted to bring up to you uh, is, and we can move move on from NATO after this point, Finland joining NATO would have been, you know, a massive blow to Putin's geostrategic plan for, for Europe moving forward. So just those two points, if you could um, expand on them a little bit. Sure. In terms of Homo Sovieticus, I mean, look, we are all products
1: of a whole variety of influences, but in particular, our upbringing and the environment in which we have our formative experiences. And the interesting thing is precisely if you look at Putin and if you look at the people around Putin, they're pretty much of the same generation. They're generally 68 years to maybe 74 75 and also often of the same social background you know usually they're, they're the first in their generation who finally broke into the nomenklatura the sort of soviet ruling class frankly and these are the people who rose inculcated with this sense that uh, the soviet union was involved in a sort of pretty existential struggle with the west but that at the same time that it had a grand mission, that it had a grand purpose, and that as a result it also had a grand stake in in the world. So they were used to being citizens of a superpower. They were used to the the inherent imperialist assumptions, which, like like a, a Russian matryoshka doll sort of nest, there is the the little brothers, the other countries, you know, the non-Russian countries within the Soviet Union, including Ukraine, and then there were the littler brothers of the Warsaw Pact countries of of Central Europe, and then there were the littlest brothers of all out there, sort of Cuba and Nicaragua and so forth, the sort of parts of the further flung, for want of a better world, Soviet Serbian Empire. But again, it was a very, very imperial mindset that, frankly, the Soviet Union inculcated, even while it was claiming to be this great anti-imperialist, anti-colonial power. And I think this is it. This is the generation of people who really had trouble coping with the end of empire, the end of great power status, and in whom it seems to have metastasized into anger and resentment in that sense. Not have we lost something, but something was taken from us. I mean, I'm struck, and this is moving on to this, or the, the second part of that question, is, look, I mean, obviously, it's, it's a long time since I've been back to Russia, given that in June 2022, I was on the first batch of Brits who were banned. In my conversations with people, you know, even people who one would regard as patriotic or even nationalistic Russians, but of a, of a slightly younger generation, the 50-somethings and so forth, they, yes, they, they, they believe that Russia was, was, was a great, strong power. But first of all, they didn't have anything like the same problem in thinking of Ukraine as a separate country. They absolutely were aware of the sort of the, the deep, almost incestuous historical connections, and the fact that there are a lot of you know, Ukrainians living in, in Russia and Russians living in Ukraine and all kind of other connectivities. But the point is, these were connectivities between two countries, rather than a sense that therefore the border didn't exist, and not quite the same. I think uh, almost, almost furious disbelief. That a country like Ukraine could want to go another way. It doesn't mean to say that these are nice people. They may well think that for geopolitical reasons they have to stop Ukraine from its pivot to the West. But in some ways it's not that they were actually almost regarded as some kind of betrayal, which is how Putin regards it. And in a way, this also segues into the whole point about, about Finland. The interesting thing is, look, yes, of course, back in the day, whenever Finland talked about potential NATO membership, sabres would be rattled, often nuclear sabres. But when it came down to it, look, Finland It may once have been for a while part of, of the czarist Russian empire, but it wasn't like Ukraine. It wasn't something that is truly close to the heart of, of people like, like Putin. I mean, there's an irony. To be honest, they already regarded it, and indeed Sweden, as kind of semi-detached members of NATO anyway. So I think this is why, I mean, apart from the fact that they're they're pretty busy at the moment, um, why the Kremlin hasn't really reacted that strongly to, to, to Finland's move. It's that in some ways, this is, this is an embarrassment, yes, this is a snub. And when they get the opportunity to do some harm to Finland, they absolutely will. But on the other hand, they also regard it as more than anything else, uh, a reflection, a codification of what's already the case.
0: So the way you're describing it, um, really, is that the arguments that Russia or Pro-Russian propagandists, should we say, rather than you know maybe the inner circle, put that NATO expansion and NATO enlargement is the reason for all of this happening, doesn't really carry water with the actual people making these decisions. Particularly given they've just increased the NATO border with with, with Finland, so I wanted to bring up that the way you're describing it sounds like a very traditional, old-school just straight up imperialism, not you know anti-imperialism, just straight up empire. This flies in the face of the assessments of what we would call foreign policy realists like John Mearsheimer, uh, who, who rejects the idea that, that Russia is an imperialist power. How do you interpret this uh, relationship that Putin's Russia has with traditional imperialism?
1: Yes, I, I, I have all sorts of problems with with the realist school of thought, not least with, with what it calls itself, in that I've never come across an unrealistic school of, of international relations. I mean, I think the, the, the problem is this. First of all, and I'm not saying this is specifically about Mearsheimer and the like, but, but many people who, who have fastened on to this particular line of argument, they're really not talking about Russia when they're talking about Russia. They're using discussion about Russia as a way of complaining about their own system and what they regard as mistakes. And it's absolutely true. The West made all kinds of mistakes. To be perfectly honest, I think the most crucial mistakes the West made were in the 1990s when it came to Russia. And in so many ways, short-termism allowed the rise of a certain sort of mood in Russia that basically meant that someone like Putin was more likely to rise. Shock horror, we have demonstrated that the West is often short-termist and stupid in its policy making. I mean, I don't honestly think that's going to come as a great shock to anyone else. but precisely, I don't think this is actually what drives putin and and his cohorts. And I think you know in part, this is just simply from the fact that I've spent a lot of my life in Russia. I mean the, fir- the very first times I, I I went I was in the Soviet Union, it shows, shows what an old veteran I am um, and, and actually, you know it, what, what is clear? Is that amongst and again I would stress this: this is not all Russians, but amongst the people who are the ones who are most intellectually and emotionally committed to the war now, it is clear that there was some, some some deeply to use that modern word problematic perspectives that they had about some kind of special responsibility that Russia had for these countries, which clearly, by corollary, were somehow Unformed, that they somehow didn't have true sovereignty, that they couldn't have true sovereignty because of of the nature of the country. I mean, Putin himself, you know, he makes it clear he does not think Ukraine is a real country, and that the Ukrainians are a real people, which is ironic considering the extent to which you know it is thanks to him that the true Ukrainian state building project has actually finally reached its culmination. Um, but but nonetheless, it is it is the this, this sense of not just Russia having a special place in the world, but Ukraine and Belarus, in particular, you know, as the other two main sort of you know nations of the, of the old Rus, as somehow owing something to Russia. I mean, again, this is this is very emotional. This is very primordial, and I think this is one of the reasons why the West has such trouble dealing with, with, with Putin before and during the war. The understanding it is because absolutely we tend to default like Meersheimer and the others into trying to look as if there were kind of practical policy mistakes or policy disconnects which could have been fixed. It's a way of trying to think of the world system as a machine. And so you're just looking for which parts don't mesh together, which parts have got worn or whatever, rather than actually thinking it as a bunch of often deeply irrational human beings making often deeply irrational decisions.
0: So I just wanted to follow up quickly on the Ukraine and NATO point. From my perspective, and this is something that I've argued for some time, is that what Russia is doing in Ukraine is part of a wider strategy that it is attempting in in all of Europe uh, about reasserting Russia's place in the world as as a great power. Part of that, to me, is the idea that they are trying to fundamentally undermine NATO to the point that the alliance collapses. Trump seems to be the big thing In that because Trump has said in in recent uh, speeches that he would even encourage Russia to attack NATO allies and that America would not respond to an Article 5 being triggered by any of these countries. So back to the idea that Ukraine could join NATO and that would be the effective protection for it. It seems to me that Putin's ambitions are far, far larger than just Ukraine at the moment and that trying to at least test the limits of article 5 seems to be a major goal for russian foreign policy going forward what's your take on that
1: look i don't think that putin has wider territorial ambitions i don't think he's sitting there thinking you know that actually the russian federation would would gain by controlling parts of poland you know, what Russia needs are more Poles. I don't think that that's really his his ambition. I think absolutely, that from his point of view, N- NATO is a problem. It is a problem precisely because it, it does constrain Russia's foreign policy options when it comes to NATO members. And certainly Article 5 is the central part of that. It means that countries are pretty much bulletproof to overt, crass military aggression. There are all sorts of course, other ways that Russia can try to bring pressure to bear from cyber attacks to economic warfare. But, you know, the, that, that central element. And that's why NATO membership is, has been such a, an issue for him, because it takes certain countries, shall we say, off the board, as he's concerned. Now, in the current environment, look, as far as Putin is concerned, he is at war with the West. I mean, he's made that perfectly clear. And, you know, ironically, I think on this, he's actually got a better perspective than most Western leaders. Let's be honest.
0: Is it a problem that Western leaders don't see themselves as being at war with Putin, even though he sees himself as being at war with them? Exactly. I mean, this is the point. I mean, I, I, I think we, we don't fully appreciate this, especially in the
1: modern world. You know, what we call sanctions, we could just as easily call economic warfare. We are involved in an economic, political, cultural, social, legal war with Russia, which is part of, or at least kind of in parallel with, the dangerously kinetic war that actually is taking place in, in in Ukraine. So, in that context, absolutely, he wants to do anything he can to undermine the cohesion and the unity of the West. I don't honestly think it's with an eye to further territorial attacks. In and of itself, I don't think he has any kind of belief that actually Russia would gain anything. It is rather precisely that what he has come up against, and a rather uncomfortable surprise for him, has been that the West, which he had regarded as essentially a collection of flabby hypocrites. And again, not without reason, considering our responses to the Georgian invasion and the Crimean annexation and so forth. But this time round, the West showed a, lot, a much greater degree of unity, cohesion, and purpose. So that, that that's a problem. So yes, he struggle I, Again, I, I mean, I don't think in practical terms that he has some kind of grand vision about reshaping the global order or anything like that. I don't think he cares, and I don't think he thinks about that. He's not, I would suggest, the deepest geopolitical thinker. But on the other hand, anything that can undermine the unity of the West and anything that can frankly scare people into backing away is a great thing. I I think that the the notion that basically NATO will collapse and Article 5 will disappear because of the Trump presidency, I'm sure the Russians would be delighted if that happened, but I don't think they're necessarily counting on it. Because remember, in the first Trump presidency, he said all kinds of nice things about Putin, though in fairness, Trump hasn't met an autocrat he doesn't like. But at the same time, actually, American policy towards Russia ended the, the Trump presidency tougher than it had been at any point since 1991. You know, again, I, I, I think I think there is an awareness in Moscow that when it comes down to it, Trump is interested in Trump, and yes, he's going to be very disruptive for the West, but the, but I don't think they're expecting that he's actually going to shatter the NATO alliance to, to that degree.
0: So I just put to you that, that most people know that Ukraine was the reason behind Trump's first impeachment. And many people that I've spoken to in America seem to believe that Trump is out for revenge, specifically against Ukraine and against Volodymyr Zelensky. And I'm not as comforted as you are by America's foreign policy towards Ukraine during the Trump administration, even though they did uh, start sending weapons in the way that, that, that Obama refused to do. However, the moment that started happening, Trump wanted dirt to be dug up on Joe Biden in in exchange for these weapons. You see, so it's a really, I do think, as you said, it Trump is out for Trump, uh, and I think that's that's an important thing to note. But um,
1: can I just can um, I just come pick up? I mean, sure. I I would agree. I think there's a difference between, as it were, policy towards Ukraine and policy towards NATO. I think policy towards NATO, if nothing else, there is just too clear and solid a constituency not just within you know in congress but within the american public whereas absolutely i mean i think towards ukraine trump has this deeply simplistic balance sheet notion of quite how international politics should work i mean witness his sort of belief almost that nato is a you know membership is is like being a club club dues and that countries have not been paying what what they've said so i think that the thing is what we have to acknowledge is, yes, Trump will basically be thinking either what what can I get for aid for Ukraine, or if not, why should we be bankrolling this this, this country that absolutely I have a vendetta towards? So yes, I, I I think Ukraine aid is a different question to the wider NATO one, and on that one, I I, I can't alas disagree with you.
0: Let's try and end the show on a positive note, if we can, because it's clear that the situation for Ukraine on the battlefield in 2024 is going to be very, very difficult. However, Putin is an old man, and he has looked quite frail health-wise in recent months, years. Um, I'm not sure that I believe the assessments that he's suffering from some sort of cancer that were floating around in the early days of the war. But Putin will not live forever. Do you see there being any hope on the horizon for a maybe potentially democratic Russian future, once the Putin regime and his cronies are no longer in power? Look, I I continue to be obscurely and unfashionably
1: optimistic, but in a very long-term perspective. Do I think that I will see a democratic Russia? I would love to think so. I'm not convinced I will. But what I do think we will see after Putin goes, however that, that happens, is a Russia that actually will be much more pragmatic. I think this is the point that actually that precisely you know Putin, for all kinds of reasons, is able to indulge uh, an ideological foreign policy. But we've seen in the past, every time the, the, the more extreme authoritarianisms in in Russia pass, there is a, a window of opportunity. And actually, it's usually Russia that reaches out to the West to try and improve relations. And if one looks at the next political generation, they are pragmatic kleptocrats. And as far as I'm concerned, they have every incentive to want to improve relations because they want to go back to the good old days when they could steal at home and bank and spend abroad.
0: Wasn't Putin once considered a pragmatic kleptocrat, though?
1: He was. And this is the thing. I mean, actually, he has changed over time. I mean, what they really want to bring back to, to is, in some ways, early Putinism. If he had stood down, as he was contemplating doing after his second presidential term, historians would be thinking of him in very, very different terms. He would have been someone who was a transitional figure, but did necessary things about bringing back some degree of stability to Russia through, admittedly, often ugly, brutal ways. The point is, he has outlasted his age, to be honest and and again like like most like most autocrats increasingly cocooned himself in in yes men and in paranoid fantasies so i think I think that you know we will see that and but particularly there is no one figure who can be the next putin that's one thing that putin is is very capable of doing is lopping off all the the tall poppies around. And therefore, in some ways, it will inevitably be some kind of, a, a sort of power-brokering coalition politics that, that leads to, to Putin's successor coming to power. So look, I mean, I, I don't think that we're going to see a democratic Russia following immediately from Putin's downfall, much as I would love to see it. But I think we will see an essentially pragmatic Russia, much more pragmatic than the one we're seeing at the moment.
0: Yes, I'd like to uh, imagine a Russia uh, like that, but I struggle. So I I don't share your optimism, but I hope that uh, I hope that you're correct. Um, and I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show, Mark. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Oh, it was my delight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the first of our two-part special on the anniversary of the day Russia sent its full forces over Ukraine's border and changed the fate of the world. Next week, we'll hear from Ukrainian writer and Academy Fellow at Chatham House's Ukraine Forum, Olha Tokariuk.
1: We are in a position where uh, the resolve of Ukrainians has not weakened. Uh, what has changed is that uh Ukraine has less resources in terms of weapons. Ukraine has a shortage of ammunition. And what has changed also, I think, is that despite the rhetoric of the West, that uh, it will support Ukraine for as long as it takes, we do not see actually this being matched by
0: deeds. And don't forget, subscribers can get early access to that episode straight away by subscribing to this podcast via Patreon. Not only will you get access to early ad-free shows, but you'll be supporting independent podcasting, taking you behind the headlines to a deeper level of understanding of the complex problems the world faces today. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. I've been Oz Katterjee, and remember, this is not a drill. Goodbye. This Is Not A Drill it was written and presented by Oz Catterjee and produced by Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell. Art by Jim Parrott. Group editor, Harrison. And executive producer,
1: Martin Boytosh. This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production.